Hello, and welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. I got a question for you. Do you know what a disciple is? Actually, let me add one more very crucial word to that question. Do you even know what a disciple is, bro? Okay, I had two words. <laughs> this episode is part two of a conversation between Matt Dabbs and Jim Putman, and we're diving deep into defining discipleship as per biblical context. Drawing parallels with sports teams and their teamwork, Jim underlines the importance of understanding terms and expressions in alignment with culture and scripture to avoid communication deficits. By using Christ's transformed New Testament definition of the church, Putman helps us redefine words like disciple and church in the original biblical sense. This is for all you church leaders out there seeking to improve your understanding and your approach to discipleship. Let's dive in. Well, we're back for part two with Jim Putman, and we're talking about defining discipleship in the second part. If you haven't watched or listened to the first part, there's a lot of powerful things that Jim shared there, and I would really encourage you to go back and watch or listen to that on the YouTube channel or the podcast. So, so Jim, define disciple for us, and we're going to talk just a bit about why having um, specific definitions or uh, biblical definitions uh, really, really matters for the church. Yeah. And what we wanted to do is go, here's what we recognized. We have a whole bunch of different people that come from a whole bunch of different backgrounds that use words in different ways. And there's a, there's a, um, you know, we used to train churches on discipleship and we still do all the time. But one of the things we used to do is we used to sit them with their staff that they came with at a table and they were all like discipleship, discipleship. They'd read some of the books, discipleship. And so I would say, I would pass out a piece of paper and say, here's some pens. I want you to write out your definition of a of disciple, of what a disciple is, without talking to anybody else at your table. And so these guys would write them down, and then I would ask them to compare them. How often do you think they had the same definition of a disciple? But they were supposed to be on the same team. Like never. <laughs> never. Yeah. Completely different answer. So we're all making disciples, but we all have a different definition. How can we, it's like in football, it's, you know, we didn't have the same playbook and I called a play in the huddle, but everybody came with a different playbook, different definitions. It doesn't matter how much talent you have in the football huddle. You can't win unless there's teamwork. And, you know, go all, all the way back to the Tower of Babel. One day they could do anything. God changed the language and they couldn't do anything. And mm -hmm. Jesus said a house divided against itself can't stand. So one of the things we teach church planners and existing churches is you're living in a church where, where they have come from, like in football, they may have played a 4-2 defense. They have a veer offense or a West Coast offense. They got different playbooks, different words. Understand what you're dealing with. If you think everybody has your language and it understands those words that way, you're already starting at a deficit. You don't even know what you're starting with. So we've said, okay, we want our people, if we're going to be about reaching the world for Jesus, making disciples, right, then we better have a shared understanding of what that is and a shared process and a shared methodology. So that when we launch these people, they're given the same message we are. We're actually together. And so we went, all right, if you go through the discipleship process, Jesus had his invitation to his first disciples. And we say it this way, in the invitation is the definition of a disciple because he actually told them what he was going to do with them. 
right? So in Matthew 419, it's a very simple verse. We want it to be really simple so that our people can remember it. And Jesus said this, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So there's his invitation. But now there's three parts of what he says he's going to do there. Number one, he says, you're going to, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to follow me. I'm the boss. I, we're, we're going to walk together, but I'm going to lead. And uh, um, so come and follow me. If you won't follow me, you're not my disciple. Uh, the rich young ruler was not Jesus' disciple because he went away sad because he would not sell his possessions and follow Jesus. So he's not on the side. So come and follow me. Second part is, come and follow me and I will make you. I'm going to take you as you are, but I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you from one thing to the next. You used to fish for fish, now you're going to fish for men. There's this transition here. So a disciple is following Jesus and a disciple is being changed by Jesus. Changed in what way? Uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Loving God, loving others. You're being conformed, Romans 8, 29, into the likeness of Christ. You're going to be, you may have been proud. You're going to start to become humble. He's going to, as he, as he leads you, he's going to confront you by his spirit, with his word, by disciple makers to move you from where you were when you started. You're becoming sanctified. You were justified, but you're becoming sanctified, becoming useful, a tool in the hands of the master. So you're following Jesus. You're going to be changed by Jesus. Finally, you're committed to the mission of Jesus. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Okay. So if you're not, following Jesus, you're not a disciple. If you're not being changed by Jesus, you know a tree by its fruit. I'm not saying you don't have a bad day. I'm saying the trajectory of your life is not changed. If you're not committed to his mission, then you don't really know his heart. If you do know him in his heart, then you know that God wants to save that person because it's his kid, or he wants him to be his kid. He's lost. He wants to save him. He, he, you know, the, the disciples didn't get that. They got mad when the little children were hanging around. Jesus like, what are you doing? When the guy's yelling at the side of the road, they're telling him to shut up. He says, what are you doing? You know, when, when they wanted to call fire down on the Samaritans, that's not the heart we come with. You know, that's not the spirit in which we're, we're coming. I don't want to destroy the world. I want to save it. So as you're following, being changed, you're committed to the mission of Jesus, right? Now, we also say, I want you to notice who he invited. These were regular, everyday people. These weren't the professional people. They were fishermen. Um, and so who does he invite regular people? And by the way, some people think a disciple is one of the 12 and we're just Christians. No, the early church reads through book of Acts. It says the disciples met here. The disciples met their wives. They were told to make disciples. They weren't called Christians until Antioch, but it wasn't because they didn't think they were disciples anymore. They, they were called Christians by the unbelievers. Why did the unbelievers call them Christians? Because all they talked about is Jesus. It's always about Christ. Christ, Christ, Christ. They're Christians. What a great thing to be said. You know what they would call people who call themselves Christians today? Trumpsters. Because hmm. that's all we want to talk about. No, we're Christians. Right? So come and follow me. Who? Regular everyday people. You're going to follow me. You're going to be changed by me. You're committed to my mission. But then also he says embedded in this, it is a methodology. They did follow him. When he was saying, come follow me, he's saying, come be with me in relationship. His methodology, if you don't just look at who Jesus is and what he taught, but his way of teaching, 
his method right there was in relationship. He, he spoke to the big group, but he always said way more to his disciples. He always pressed into them relationally. He had his 12, he had his three, even had his one. He was in relationship with these guys. And so his method is right there in the New Testament for making disciples. So we teach people about that as well. But, uh, um, and then when you talk about his church, the church was right there. There's a definition of a church. We called our church Real Life Ministries, not Real Life Church. People ask me, well, why'd you do that? Well, because if I do a word association game with non-believers and I say, what's the first word you think of when I say the word church? What does a non-believer say? Hypocritical. Judgmental. Uh, boring. All right. Well, what about Christians? Most undiscipled Christians, when I say the word church, what's the first thing they think about? They, they would say, uh, boring, uh, you know, um, a, a building, it's down on, you know, Cecil. So we called it ministries because we didn't want people to think they already knew what we were. Mm. And we took our, the word ministries from 2 Corinthians 5, where it says, you've been reconciled to God and you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We implore you on behalf of God, your ambassador, I'm imploring you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. We're ministers. Every Christian is going to minister. We're going we're gonna to learn to use our gifts and abilities wherever we work, live, and play. We're, we're ministers of reconciliation, right? We're blessed are the peace. We're bringing peace between God and lost people. When there's a battle in church, we're peacemakers. You know, it, we're, we're reconciling, not always trying to divide and separate. So what yeah. we're doing is we're defining these terms. We have a, I get asked this all the time. Uh, the most important thing we did when we started 26 years ago was we, we had a membership class. And here's why we did it. First of all, every spork has a, a beginning of the season where the parents come in, they get the playbooks and they say, here's our playbook. You may have come from another school. You know how you play football over there. Here's our playbook. Here's our schedule. Here's our parent covenant. Here's, you know, we only on the sidelines. We want you up at the stands unless we ask you. You know, they get in. And then here's our practice schedule. They, they go, you may have played before, but this is how we're going to play so we get on the same page. Here's a learned playbook. If we said, I don't like that playbook. I like what we did over there. They'd say, then go back over there. Here's what we're doing. And if you didn't want to do that, if you didn't like it, it was designed to filter you out. Don't come here. Go over there. Our membership class says, here's our definition of words. We want you to know what they are. Here's what we're expecting. Here's what you can expect from us. Here's what we're expecting from you. Well, I'm already a Christian. Yeah, but what does that even mean? Do you know how many versions of that? What that means is, if we're going to make disciples, what is baptism? What, how do we define that word? That's, def that's defined so many different ways. What is church? What is a disciple? So... And then every year, all of our leaders go by seasons, and then we go back through it every single year for 25 years. No matter how long you've been here, you may have been a member for 15 years, but every year you go back through who we are and what we are. Because every sports team would do that. They don't go, since you came last year, we don't have to do this year. Why? Because they're reading other books, listening to other programs. The world is changing around us. They need to be reminded, this is who we are. This is where we're going. And alignment is super important. That's really good. A lot of things uh, were crossing my mind as you were talking. You know, you were talking about how how Jesus called the ordinary people, and 
my understanding, and I don't know how they know this, but you know, in Acts three and four, when when it says that they realized that these were unschooled ordinary people, it said that they realized that they were Galileans. It's like, why does it say that? And I think that why it says that is because Galileans sounded like hillbillies or something. Like they did, yeah. They know, have an accent, they had an accent, like your accent. Those are not the scholarly type people. Those are like, yeah, the bottom of the barrel folks, you know. Well, that that was also the area where the Romans owned all that territory. So yeah. the Romans said, you know, all the other cities were dominating that part of it. It was the 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 dregs up there. Yeah, that's why Philip said, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" Yes. Yeah. So that's when you know it's from God. Yeah. Yeah, you just know it's from God. We had a really interesting conversation. We had planted a second house church this past year. And what we do, we don't, we start in a community, we meet outside, we meet by the, the entrance to the neighborhood, real public and, and, uh, start serving the neighborhood prayer walk and all this. And, and we start as a, as a prayer time and Bible study. We don't say, Hey, we're starting a church, come to our church. We just yeah. gather people and collect and encourage and love on them and pray with them. And then as they start kind of figuring this out, we have a, a conversation. Okay. What is a church and what makes us not a church? So we were starting into this conversation of what is a church and what makes us not a church? Like what, what's the difference and, and what would we need to do to be a church, you know, that we're not currently doing. And we did not at all expect this conversation to go how it went. These people were like, I come here because it's not church. And I was like, wait a minute. Oh, I was not prepared. So, okay, like, let's get back to, like, what does the word church mean? Like, exactly what you're talking about. Like, these definitions. How did it become a curse word instead of a, a wonderful thing? Yeah. Undiscipled people. Yeah. And these representing are representing Jesus. Yes. So we had to unravel all of that and get back to church in its purest form and what God intended. We're not losing anything by this being a church. Actually, we're gaining. Like, it was so hard for them to see it at first. And then once they realized that, we weren't making some like radical shift from something really wonderful to something awful. They were really excited about we don't it. Want to, we don't want to do it. We don't want to do the church thing. We want this. You know, it's like, we like this. You know, wait a minute. So yeah, that was really eye-opening. That was a couple of weeks ago and it really, really took me back. But then I, I, I can understand, you know, why people would do that. But it, it, it brings home your point, you know, like why words matter and words change in people's minds over time. And, and, you know, discipleship for some people is a bad word. There's some movements that have abused that word horribly and had like terrible ab abuse and things like that on the part of like hierarchies of abuse and, and extreme accountability, real, real hostile accountability and things like that, super controlling. So that word's hard for some people. So I, I really love the Matthew four that, that you do in discipleship and that you and, and Bobby talk about both that it's super sticky of an idea to me that I can just go back to that verse and find that definition, have the three parts and the three functions like that, that has been super helpful to me in my ministry and having that definition to kind of click into. So I really do appreciate that. And, and now you emphasizing also how that also runs through your church, how practically speaking, you bring that about on a regular basis. What kind of things do you, do you teach when you have that kind of back to the vision? I hate to say back to the basics, but the identity class the, or the, the, the basics class. Yeah. We talk about our key doctrines. We talk about what we expect for lifestyle. We talk about the covenant that you're, we're asking you to, to, to take. 
we talk about how our church is structured. So it's really meant to be, you know, to answer some of the questions that you have about church because of how church is behaved. You know, who's the leader? Are you the leader? No. Oh, you're under authority too? By who? You know, who's an elder? What is an elder? You know, and again, we've taken all these words that, that God gave us, and the progressive movement has taken those words and redefined them. You know, it doesn't matter what 2,000 years of history means. We've come up with something new, you know, and so we're going to change things. And, and, you know, you do not monkey with the Lord's definitions of words and not impact something. Yes. And so, you know, we, we talk about a disciple in the five spheres, and, and the five spheres is really the book of Ephesians, and it's, it's the scope and sequence of Ephesians where he talks about who you are in Christ, then he talks about the church, then he talks about the home, then he talks about the work world, and then he talks about the spiritual realm. So those are the five spheres. And so we talk about what does it mean to follow Jesus and, and be changed by Jesus and committed to the mission of Jesus in my abiding sphere. So, you know, we just talk about the reason we talk about the five spheres, and by the way, it's the same exact scope and sequence in Colossians. It's just one step different in First Peter. But what he's really doing is he's saying, in every sphere of your life, it's not business is business and church is church and home is, home. no. Jesus, if you abide in Christ, your identity is in Christ, and he changes you in every part of your life. And, you know, then it, there's an order, and there's actually a purpose in the order. Who you are in Christ, how you got in Christ, Ephesians 1 and the first part 2. And then he goes into the church sphere. And then he goes into the home sphere. Now, why does he speak about the church sphere more than anything else? Well, it's because in the church sphere, you learn what the home sphere is supposed to look like. It's in the church sphere, you go, oh, that's what a father looks like. Because they weren't, they weren't raised in it. The Ephesians weren't raised in a godly culture. They didn't. If, if you're not in an abiding spiritual family where the older women are teaching the younger women, where you're, you're connecting, where you've got wise brothers and sisters in Christ that show you the word of God, unpack it and give you modeling— then what you do in your home sphere is you go, well, this is what my parents did in the home sphere. Or they'll go, my parents did this in the home sphere, so I'm definitely not doing that. But they haven't seen what it's supposed to look like. Hmm. They haven't seen what humility looks like. Okay, that's what that leadership, an elder who lays down his life and not domineering or whatever. Oh, so if I'm the head of my household, I'm supposed to reflect that. And he reflects Jesus. And that's the kind of leader Jesus was. But if you take out the church sphere and all they have is the home sphere, what does that even look like if you didn't come from a Christian home? Or most Christian families, they didn't disciple in the home. They took them to church so the church could do it. Mm-hmm. And, and most men are so busy in the world, they're providers, but they don't, the, the, the woman is more of the spiritual leader. And so if you have, if you have women leadership in the, in the uh, adult church, that just reinforced because, you know, that was the, man, the roles the man was supposed to play. You know, we have women playing that role. Well, does that does what happens in the church impact the home? Well, yeah. The woman says, well, there's a woman pastor. I'm the leader of this home. What? We're egalitarians. We're, we're equal value, different roles. I'm the leader. So the guy's like, oh, I'm not the head of the household as Christ is the head of the church. I'm not. Oh, well, what am I? There is no man and woman. There's, well, then gender doesn't matter. There, there. There is, marriage could be with it. All these words have biblical meanings, and we're called on to define terms and roles in biblical ways because it actually, he knows how he made us, he knows who we are, what we are, and it matters. And you start mucking with the church, 
it impacts the home. It impacts the work life. And the enemy is always just waiting this in the spiritual realm to, to attack your abiding spirit, which, which disconnects you at church and home and the world and all of it. Yeah, there was a study that came out in the last couple of weeks, I think, where it talked about how young women are becoming more left-leaning you know, slash progressively minded and that young men were becoming a bit more conservatively minded. Kind of society's kind of gone after the guys and now they're, they're you know, reacting to that and, and obviously seeing that as, as very unfavorable and, and, and rejecting it. But it's interesting too that, and I don't know the stats, but, you know, if, if, if the dad starts going to church, you know, the kids typically, the family typically follows, you know, if mom makes the decision to go to church, it's kind of a little bit more hit or miss, you know, dad has like 90% if the man goes and it's 15 to 18% if the woman goes. And so once you make that move to nothing really matters and it's all the same and who cares and you, you, you convince the home sphere of that, then, you know, that certainly could be an effective tactic from the evil one, you know, to, to undermine that influence for sure. Yeah, I mean, everything about the, the, the defining terms is important. Like who should be an elder? What is the elder's rule? I mean, it, God designed his church and he, he, he gave us a method for discipleship. He gave us a recipe for the church, not just in rules, but in attitudes. Like Jesus is our role model. model. He was a good leader in what, he, what decisions he made, but also his attitudes and behaviors. And so, and he was both leader and under the authority of God. He shows us both what submission and leadership looks like. And so at every stage, we're called on to get back to the beginning instead of allow our sinful nature or our culture to dictate terms. And the problem is a lot of these people, they use biblical words like the word love, but they don't understand, you know, love is not affirming sin. First Corinthians 13 says, love does not rejoice with unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. But they don't know what love is. Love is, is you just be you and I'm, it's unconditional. And, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I've got to back your play or it's abuse. And that's not what God says. So what is God's definition? And that's what we teach. And that's what we seek to live out. And you ever notice that the word disciple falls out in the epistles, right? So like you do a Bible gateway search for disciple and it's going to be all gospels and acts. And then it's like nothing in the epistles, but the language shifts to father, brother, sister, household, family, the family of God, the household of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, it, it, and I, I just wonder, there's no way to know, you know, once Jesus was not physically present to be able to follow him around, you know, you kind of wonder if that changed the way they talked about it. Certainly he leaves the Holy Spirit with us to help disciple us as well. And, and the word and the, at that time, oral traditions and things like that. Yeah. But, I think, I think that's a really astute thought because he does turn it into, um, it's relation. body, body, like authority, yeah, family, like relationship. Yeah. He uses terms that would have been less Jewish and, and more understandable to Ephesus or, you know, Corinth or it's the same concept, you know, a, a parent was supposed to impress this on their children, you know. I, when you talk about methodology, Jesus actually is taking the Deuteronomy 6 methodology for discipleship, and he lived that out. Yeah. And, and you know, like if you follow like Ray Vanderland 
and he talks about how the rabbi teaches you to teach his teaching and, and li live his living, like do his doing and say his saying, or however you want to say that. And then Jesus says, when the spirit comes, the spirit will remind you of what I said. The spirit is why? Because you got to make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything he said, everything he commanded. So the Holy Spirit's going to remind you how to teach like Jesus taught. And the Holy Spirit, he says, is going to em empower you really. And you see that in Acts 2, this Holy Spirit empowerment. So the, the empowering is for the doing. So I really feel like the Holy Spirit is the discipler in a sense. If the Holy Spirit in the absence of Jesus is the presence of the Spirit in us now, that the Holy Spirit is, is helping us teach what Jesus taught and do what Jesus did. In fact, we'll do greater things than he did because we'll have the Spirit and there'll be all of us all over the world doing these things at the same time. So the, 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 I, think the I, like that. I think the Holy Spirit even more, by the way, the Holy Spirit empowered the ministry of Jesus too, because in Luke 4, when he reads that scroll in Isaiah, he said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me to do the miracles and the teaching, the proclaiming. And then in, in Acts 10 with Peter and Cornelius, Peter says this really subtle thing to Cornelius. He says, the spirit of the Lord was on Jesus. Uh, he said he did those miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. Something along those lines there in Acts 10. But he Well, it says that the power of the Holy Spirit's power was there for him to heal. Yes. It actually says that. And yeah. so, you know, Jesus took on flesh and he limited himself. Yes. And so now, you know, he had to respond to the Father. He didn't know all things. And he, and he had to have the Holy Spirit's activity. And, or he couldn't heal because they didn't believe. It's not that he couldn't do something. He just wouldn't, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. but there's a, there's an aspect of his, of Christology here. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fascinating. And, you know, I, growing up, I was, oh, he says Jesus, he had power, but somehow the spirit was doing that in him. I, I don't know how to explain it or describe it, but it's there. So then there's continuity between the ministry and the message and the mission of Jesus and us with the Holy Spirit, like Acts 2, you know. Repent and be baptized and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit or 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6. We're temple because the Holy Spirit dwells in us and honor God with your body. Don't be in a sexual morality. Like there's a life to live, a message to proclaim because the Spirit is now in us and empowering us and reminding us and informing us. He says, you know, you'll be before kings and magistrates and all that and authorities, but you'll be given the things to say the Holy Spirit's going to help you know what to say. So the Holy Spirit gives us the message. The Word obviously does too. And that all confirms each other, you know, but. Yeah, I, the Spirit of God will never contradict the Word of God. Yes. So that's why, you know, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, so they won't follow another, right? We've heard his voice, his teaching. So now anything that's, you know, if it's not familiar to what Jesus has said, then we're to question it. You know, test the spirits, see where they yes. are from God, because we felt prophets come to the world. How do you know? They have to say Jesus came in the flesh and they have to agree with the apostles. We're to, we're to hold to the content for the faith that was once for all delivered in, to the saints in the book of Jude, right? We are an angel come preaching a different gospel in the which there is a, a, there is a understanding that they had that what had been given was, you know, Hebrews 2. First announced by Jesus, confirmed by the apostles, testified to two by the miracles, right? Do not yeah. drift away. If angels uh, yeah, do that, there's, a, you know, as you, as you walk through this, there is a um, understanding of what he said. And so you become, it's like, I, I use this illustration. My kids, when, we, you know, church had really grown up and I have these three little kids and we heard about a kidnapping in uh, Portland. And so we sat down with our kids and I said, hey, if anybody ever comes to you and says, hey, your dad told me to pick you up. 
If I didn't tell you or they don't have a code, that's a lie, run. I've been, I'll never send somebody to do that without that. And let's say I, I forgot sometime, but you said no and you ran. I will not punish you for that. You will know what somebody else mm -hmm. says based on the confirmation that's of good. my work. Yeah, that's good. Does that make sense to you? Yes. And you told and, them in uh, advance. You told, yep. you told them in advance because you knew they were going to need that. Yep. He told us Because somebody advance. could come and say, hey, I'm just, your dad sent me to pick you up. Well, they don't know all the people in the church. Yeah. And that's so true. that's, in a sense, what Jesus did with us, mm -hmm. the disciples did with us. And there's so many false teachers and so many wind of doctrine going on right now and all that stuff, you know, unstable people, undiscipled people. And, and right now we've got to stabilize our people. But part of that is um, God's word, we have to understand it. And, it, and if, because if we don't, then any, you can take any word. I, I think about it this way. Do you remember when the word gay meant happy? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's addendums to words that they add over time. Baptism, well, there's an addendum added later on. What did the word mean at the time it was given? Yeah, as a mercy. So anybody that tells you it's anything else, I'm not here to tell you you're in hell or you're yeah. not saved. I'm just telling you that's not what that word means in the yeah. Greek. Yeah. And that's not the word that Jesus used, and that's not the understanding of the word. And it, it, do you want me to preach that homosexuality is now okay? Well, no, I can't believe it. Then, then you don't want me to teach that baptism is, is something other than it was. The word was the work. Yeah. And if we don't do that for our people, they're not coming out of these other churches and other environments discipled. If you assume that, or if you haven't done intentional work in your own church and you just you haven't been in relationship with them, you haven't defined terms, if you assume everybody in your church has the same definition, you are going to be sorely disappointed. Mm, that's really good. You know, once we start playing word games and trying to work the definitions of words around, we get into a lot of trouble. Um, and, you know, James Barr had a had a book called Semantics of Biblical Interpretation, and he, he, he critiqued Kittle, that 10-volume theological dictionary of the New Testament, which Kittle, I think, was a, was a Nazi, maybe, or a Nazi sympathizer or something anyway, but not that we need to get into all that canceling stuff, but uh, although Nazi canceling is probably okay. Um, yes, yeah, <laughs> I'd, I'd go with that. I would go with that. Uh, but, but what people were doing and they do it now with like Logos Bible software, which I love Logos Bible software, but they'll, what they'll do is they'll, they'll pull up all the range of meanings of a word and then they'll go, yeah, that's the one I need right there. You know, don't worry context. about the context. Don't worry about, you know, all this. It's like, that's the one that fits my sermon or that's the one that fits my cultural or philosophical ideology. And so I'm going to, that's what Jesus meant in this instance. Or they'll go to those passages like Romans one and they'll be like, when he said that he, he meant pederasty or he meant you know, all sorts of things. And they, so if you can define the word so specifically, you know, then we can, we can say he's not talking about the things we're talking about. And then we start playing all these word games, you know, and then, well, that's what they're doing right now is they're, they're coming up with a different context. Yeah. They're creating a context. And then th this is actually answering a context, right? Like, you, you know, with women roles, they were actually, you know, Corinthian women who are out or Ephesus women that are out of control. And, and so they're dealing with a specific problem. They don't get to speak. Okay. Well, how do you know that's the context? You know, for 2000 years, that's not what they said the context was. That could have been the context, but that's not the only place it says something about that. 
And his reason, he didn't go, hey, the reason this is happening is because this is happening there. He goes back to Genesis and he says, because he, he uses a Genesis argument, not a cultural argument. And so, but they want to create a context like Matthew Vines with the, the gay Christian. Mm-hmm. He talks about homosexual offenders in First Corinthians as being people who take children with, uh, apart from their will. And they said, so that's what's really going on back then. So he's not d- dealing with homosexual people who are living out homosexuality. Yeah. He's yeah. talking to people who are, you know, about well, first of all, where did you come up with that? What, what, what early church father did you read? Where did that happen that you created a context, said that it, it, it and what do you do with, with, with this passage over here that deal with even a completely different context, but it seems to be the same principle. And they just create a context by which they can bypass what they want to. Yeah. Then they can say, this is not that. Yep. You know, if they're abusing children, same-sex abuse of children, then loving relationships of marriage and X, Y, and Z today, is, they're, saying apples and, they're, they're saying apples and oranges, so we're going to redefine it. And like you said, different contexts. So, you know, words matter. Definitions matter. And we have to go back to the scriptures and say, okay, how were these words used? How, how was it understood at, at that time, you know, and then when these things were used? And there's amazing resources that can help us with that. But again, what I love about what you're doing with Disciple is you're taking it straight from the greatest disciple maker who ever lived. Super simple to find, super simple to remember. And it, it really helps frame up our ministry really well because it is three steps, guys. I mean, we can, we can break this down very simply. We have to invite people. We have to invite them into transformative relationships that are not only just personally transformative, but then send them out to help other people be transformed. Like it's really just as simple as that. But when you define that term with that verse, it, I think it's just really powerful. Like I'm just so thankful that God laid that upon you all's hearts to, to discover that, or I don't know how that came to be with Matthew four, but it's, it's just well, when, when we, we realized started going, we're going to make disciples and wait a minute, maybe we ought to look at how he did something in the scriptures. Is there a method embedded in the scriptures? And even like with Paul, is there a method that Paul was using that we can discover in Acts or in the, in the epistles that tells you how he made disciples? He took guys on trips, right? He said, you know my life. Yeah, the come be. is not a one-time come. The come is like, come along, three years of walking, guys. I'm your spiritual father. You, yeah. have, you know, I'm your, you know, you're like a son to me. You know my life. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? And, and so you look back and you see the early church living in relationship day to day, house to house, you know. Um, and it wasn't a box you check and then go on with life with your hell insurance. It was a lifestyle you were called to, to follow Jesus. And, and, and then he taught them. He gave them opportunities to try stuff and fail. He, he encouraged them. He called them out. He, you know, it, it, and so we look at that and we don't even look at the method, but we preach sermons about what he did. Like I use that illustration of when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And why did he do that? Well, they were fighting about who the grace of the kingdom of heaven was. His way of dealing with it was, hey, I, do, I, don't, I don't need to do a four-part series. I'm going to show them something. I'm going to do something. And it changed their life. Now, we preach about it, but we don't actually do life with other believers the way he did it. And so that, that's always been real powerful to me. Yeah, I love that. And that pairs right in with part one. Again, if you all haven't watched or listened to part one, 
so practical. And I hope that y'all will go back and, and watch that or listen to that. Do you have any any final thoughts for us here on on this topic, Jim, or anything last to, to share with us? Not that I, I mean, there's a deal. You know where I am. You want to talk again? Let me know. All right. All right. It's been good. Really appreciate you. Oh, I appreciate you. You know, you, you're a deep thinker. You're, you're, you're a deep well. So I picked up some things today that were really good. Thanks. Oh, man. Well, well, I really appreciate what all you poured into me through your books. And just personally, it's been a real blessing and it's blessed our ministry here in Auburn. So thank you. God bless you, buddy. You may not believe this when I say it, but the 2024 National Disciple Making Forum is only nine weeks away. Have you bought your tickets yet? Are you coming? I'm so excited about it. If you don't already have your tickets, please click the link in the show notes and get your seat squared away for our next amazing live event. All right, y'all. Up next, we're going to be hearing from Grant Skeldon talking about why is disciple making so vital today? Make sure you click the subscribe button before you leave this channel. I would love to have you as one of our listeners every single month, every single week. So please do that before you leave. All right, y'all, enjoy the rest of your day and keep coming back to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Mm -hmm.